Well, howdy friends. Uh, my name is Ryan, in case you forgot my name. <laughs> Katie Mason, Gage and I are thrilled to be back with you guys, to be back with you worshiping Jesus together. We've been looking so forward to this Sunday. Uh, we had a uh, best, best summer vacay ever, uh, best summer vacation, but it's so good to be back with our favorite part of God's family, favorite members of God's family, you guys. You're so precious to us. Um, I want to give a special shout out, especially to, to Brett and to Adam for filling the pulpit while I was away. That was a huge, massive help. Thank you guys. As well as to all the volunteers who, who always keep things churning here at Sunrise, really make the church go. Thank you guys for all that you do. Love you and appreciate you greatly. Yeah, it's just good to be back. What I want to do this morning and over the next few weeks is just share with you what, what God's been teaching me over the summer. It, it comes from one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the Old Testament book of Joshua. And so if you would, turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles provided for you in these chair pockets in your aisle or at the middle end of these rows if you're in the side aisles. Please take that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. We'd love for you to have a Bible. Uh, Please grab it. If you don't have a Bible, you have a phone, you're going to need something to look up Joshua chapter 11 because we're not going to have it up on the screen. It's a whole chapter. After all, so um, it's a lot of copying and pasting. I figured, let's just read it instead. It's a book, Joshua is, that I actually uh, preached through in 2012. But because it was 24 chapters, I skipped a few chapters in the middle. Kind of gave a little summary. But it's actually those middle parts of Joshua that God's been using to teach me lessons. Lessons about, about faith, lessons about victory in Christ, lessons about understanding others And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, these kinds of lessons, just very simply from the book of Joshua. And I want to share with you, though, before we kind of get into Joshua 11, why I think this book, the book of Joshua, and I encourage you to go back, read the first 10 chapters this week if you have opportunity, because it will resonate with you. Here are some reasons why I think this book may resonate with you as it has with me. Number one, we can relate to the people in it. We can relate to to next-generation believers. The generation under Joshua's leadership, they get to immediately access God's greatest gift yet, his greatest promise yet, a land, a beautiful, fertile land they get to call their own. They get to experience this land having not endured slavery, having not been utterly destitute, having not experienced the power of God through ten devastating plagues, having not wandered aimlessly in the wilderness not knowing where your next meal is going to come, other than the fact that you have to rely that it's going to come from the sky, God says. They get God's promised land without being asked to even hurt their closest friends because they picked a golden cow over Yahweh, their God. They get the promised land without having suffered all these things. Those things were endured by the generation prior to them. So they went through that generation, all the especially grueling, haunting stuff, so we don't have to. Just as we don't have to look over our shoulder as we worship Jesus, nor worry about physical persecution as we talk about the good news about Jesus, like Jesus' first disciples did. And just like the first missionary that came in did, you may not know that, James Elmsley. So I I can't help but wonder if this next generation believers anticipated, as they got to that river, about to cross into that land, anticipate everything's going to be easier 
for us than for our mom and dad. Everything's going to be easier for us in the promised land. And if we don't also think that way also, right, living where we do, in the time we do, in the land we do, in the 21st century, here in Cayman, things are going to be a little easier. Another way I think that Joshua resonates with us is Joshua is about tangible trials. What do I mean by that? Joshua is not about a sort of existential crisis, or it's not about a journey towards emotional healing, though those things are important. It's about homelessness. It's about joblessness. That's what God's people, I think because God's people have never had a home at this point in, in God's story. They've always wandered without a land, because they don't have land, there's no steady job for them. No steady income, if you will. Even today, as we learn a lesson about faith, the context here is faith in God for life's necessities. Another way I think Joshua could resonate with us, the third way is that Joshua points to Jesus. That's because God, using death and destruction to, to deliver his people from slavery and death, through the middle of a sea, and into this wonderful promised land is this, the ultimate Old Testament foreshadowing of what we have in Jesus Christ, of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and promise of heaven for those of us who would trust him. The exodus, the entry into the promised land is, is the ultimate picture that points to Jesus' work for us, culminating in a promised land of heaven. And so, and so it's easy as we read these things, we see parallels to our lives of them, uh, under the loving lordship of Jesus, under his care. It's very easy to see those parallels. So that's enough preview. Let's dive in. Joshua chapter 11. Let's read God's word together. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, all that God had done to deliver his people, Jabin sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshvath, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and the Naphoth door on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, he sent to the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out, all of them, with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and camped together at the waters of Mirmam to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Mermam and fell upon them. Mermam, sorry, and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and uh, Misrophath, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, he burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. And and Hazor formerly, he was the head. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction until there was none left that breathed. And he 
burn Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds burned, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. All the spoil of those cities, all the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword till they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded Moses. And so Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all, and all the land of Goshen, and all the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises from, towards Seir as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, struck them, and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. They should come against Israel and Israel in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from the Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none left of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and the Lord gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is God's word. If I'm brutally honest with you guys, I had hoped that my life would get easier, that, that eventually and finally I would, I would turn that proverbial corner that it seems like others had turned in their lives, but I had not yet turned. That things had not yet gotten easy for me, for us. I never expected it, but for, for our story, and some of you guys know this, our, our first five years of marriage were, were very difficult. We had a very difficult first five years, and God graciously directed us towards a health problem. We turned a corner. Things got easier, and I thought, oh, this is it. But then I became basically a workaholic. I, I, I delved into ministry. And anytime someone would give me an opportunity, uh, to, to, and they came in to teach about Jesus, to, to tell others about Jesus, to preach about him, I said yes to those opportunities over and over and over again. And that sounds really good and even really spiritual, but it wasn't because I made that my God and I neglected my family. Thankfully, God got my attention. He directed my heart towards my family and my family towards Cayman. And I thought, finally, we've turned a corner. We can enjoy our 30s now. Our kids are no longer really young, and we can enjoy this time together. Until another issue crept into our lives. And slowly over the past two years, it wreaked havoc, took us down the very dark road, got some interventions, some medical help, and God has really provided. And you know what? We have turned a corner, but it's not quite the corner I always expected to be, a corner around which would be that easier life. I can never have admitted this, and, and I'm, indeed, I don't think I, I even realized it. But deep down, what I've wanted 
for all these years of my life is God plus the good life. God's purpose plus a life where I get to laugh and enjoy things primarily. A life where, yes, God is in it, but there will be more highs than lows, right? More, more enjoyment than sadness. So all the way this summer, I read Joshua chapter 11. And, and God speaks to me such that my entire perspective shifts on what God really means to give to his children. And that's this in a nutshell. Not an easier life, but a stronger faith. Not an easier life, but a stronger faith. And I admit some of you are like, no duh. Like, Ryan, we, I've learned this lesson before. Some of you, you might be in the same boat as me. For some of you, this is totally new revelation. But I have to admit, and it's a little embarrassing to do so before you guys, that it's a lesson that I'm embarrassed to have to be taught again. But, but thankfully, th- this scene painted for us in Joshua 11 has brought about for me just a fresh anticipation in my life, finding joy, not in what's more fun, and I love to laugh, but not what's more enjoy, but not in an easier life, but in watching my faith become more mature, more, more complete, more, more able to rejoice and better handle adversity. And I'm getting to watch this actually happen in my life, guys, and it is exciting me more than it ever has before. Let me explain how I'm seeing all of this in Joshua chapter 11. Here's the context. Joshua, well, he's led this next generation through a, a raging river and into a promised land. The problem is that land is occupied by thousands upon thousands of people already. These weren't just any old people. These were, these were pagans who hated God. They, they lived lives of self-indulgence. They worshiped gods who, who often asked them to perform a human sacrifice of their children. So, so when you read about what happens here, and, and you have sympathy, I get it, but these were not what we would call good people. So, so they had to evict them from their land. And to evict them from their land, they had to go to war for five straight years. And God helps them along the way. Right? He, he's faithful to them. He brings down the walls of their enemies' defenses. He, he, he scatters into chaos entire armies. In chapter 10, right before what we're reading today, God makes the sun stand still in the sky so God's people can keep winning the battle that they're fighting. So God is very good to his people, but the soldiers still had to fight. Every able-bodied man. And it was five straight years of fighting. For those of you who have never served in the military, just kind of give you an example, a U.S. Army combat tour of duty is now a maximum of one year before coming home. So you do a tour of duty that, that's in combat, stay for a year, you rest. You rest in a permanent sort of way. Usually two years for non, non-combat tours of duty, usually. For God's people, we're talking a five-year combat tour of duty with really no rest. Never sleeping in the same place twice. Moving constantly. And you can feel their exhaustion. Again, I'd encourage you to read it. And when you read through chapter 10, by the end of it, as a reader, you think, finally, it's over. The hard part is done. They've turned this corner. Now they can enjoy this land filled with blessing, with milk and honey. At worst, maybe a couple mini challenges, a couple easy people to knock off at the end. But no. Instead, God's people turn this significant corner, moving from the south to the north, and they find their most formidable opponents yet the city of Hazor, and the Anakim. 
It would be a detail easy to miss as you read chapter 11, but it struck me deeply. Hazor is believed to have been the largest city in Syria and Palestine, covering 200 acres containing 40,000 people, which for 1400 BC, if you adjust for inflation, would be something like 10 to 15 million people today. You're walking into a city like that. It's like taking a tired army from Orlando and encountering New York City, but they've also recruited Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. Right? Or, or, or like your, your exhausted army from East London and running into Cape Town, but they've, re- they've recruited Durban, Joburg, Port Elizabeth, Right? Do I need to keep going with every city you're from? I can't do that. All right, I'm going to South America, I get to Toronto. I, I, we can keep going on this. But yeah, I hope you get the point. And we read that in verse 4. They came out with their troops, all their troops, a great horde and number like the sand that is on the seashore with a great many horses and chariots. Sand that's on the seashore. Like nothing they'd ever seen. And, and once they get past that, they run into the Anakim. If you don't know who these people are, They're described by 10 of 12 Hebrew spies as giants, otherworldly almost giants, next to whom these spies felt like mere grasshoppers, it says in in Numbers 13.31. Five years. You've seen just about everything. You're exhausted. And instead of God giving you a break, you've run into the largest army you've ever seen in your life and these uber-humans out of a sci-fi movie, to which God says in verse 6, don't be afraid of them. (laughs) Don't be afraid of them. For this time tomorrow, I will give them all over to you. So, so why is God doing this? What is God giving them? Not an easier life, but a stronger faith. God means for us to rely on him to the uttermost and to grow us in that reliance throughout our life. Why, why is that so important to God? Why is faith so important to God. It'd be good to just take a moment here, take a time out, answer this question, because it is a huge question for all of our lives. A few reasons why faith is so important to God, our faith. Number one, faith is necessary to know God forever. It's the one requirement. Faith, trust, it's the one requirement to know Jesus forever. If someone asks you how to become a Christian, there is only one requirement, trust in Jesus, faith in Jesus. John 5.24, Jesus says, truth. I say to you, whoever hears my word and trusts that him who sent me has eternal life, that person doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The person who trusts Jesus. Faith is necessary to please God, Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, we're told there, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek them. So we, just to please God, to make our Father happy, it, it, it's through faith. A life of faith, acts of faith. But also faith is necessary to bless others. If you want to supremely bless other people, it has to happen through faith. Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But then he says, he says whoever comes, to, whoever believes in me, sorry, whoever trusts in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this referring to the Holy Spirit. In other words, anyone who comes to Jesus, trusts him for life, for salvation. That person has living waters out of his heart to offer other people. But that can't happen without faith. God wants it. He wants to develop it in our life. And the primary way God develops our faith is refusing us an easy life. After conquering bears, you get lions. 
After the turning the corner, getting around pesky things, you face giants. And here's what he has to say about it. And I encourage you to write this reference down if you have a chance because this sort of will summarize nicely our sermon. James 1, 2 through 4. The brother of Jesus says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that fits so well with our, our sermon. You, you turn a corner and you meet a giant. So you turn a corner, you meet this trial of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Don't you want to be that kind of person? But notice, there's a choice in it. Did you notice that in the verse? There's a a choice. You can refuse to keep going, to be steadfast in the next trial. It says, let steadfastness do its work. That means you can not let it do its work. You can can turn. You can run. You can live a superficial life. To to sort of make things easy for you. And that's very easy in Cayman, isn't it? You can order your life in such a way that life really isn't too hard. If you just kind of ignore some things God says, you can, you, can, you can live this good life with God, not facing anything difficult at all. You could do that. But if you trust God when he says, do not be afraid of them, as we read in verse 6 in our passage, if, if you believe in him to provide every need whilst enduring trials, your faith starts to become more complete, more mature, not lacking anything. That's the kind of faith we want, an almost untouchable kind of faith. If that excites you, that interests you, let me, let me suggest this morning then four ways to get your faith strengthened. Four ways just to get your faith strengthened. And, and i got to just take a, a brief time out to say this. Because it's really important. The reason I put it this way, get your faith strengthened, is we just can't manufacture faith on our own. We can't make faith happen. In the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, the Bible says that faith is a gift of God. It's a gift towards us. But what we can do is put ourselves in positions where we can be ready to receive faith. Does that make sense? It's kind of like this summer. I, you know, I was, there, was, there was a period where I was eating lots of junk food, Oreo cookies, EL fudges, things of that nature. There's some ice cream that was had. Uh, just, just a lot of Mexican food. I love Mexican food. And, and, and in this period, I also wasn't doing things with my body that I should have been, like moving a lot, those sorts of things, right? And, and I could feel it. Like I was getting to that last notch in my belt, and I was just like, yeah, it's, there's not another notch. I can't keep going. And, 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 I, and I felt this, and it was reflected in a scale, and I saw it happen. And I, uh, I wondered, why is this happening? And then I looked down at my, my feet, and I had on what I have on now, sandals. And then I looked in my bag, and there, oh, there are sneakers in my bag. There are shoes that have not been moved from that bag. And, and so I, all I did, I did something very simple. I put my shoes on. All of a sudden, I, I had all these opportunities available to me to actually become more active, to not feel the way I felt, and to, you know, re- reduce the notches on my belt. Those sorts of things. Why? Because I put myself in a better position. As long as I had sandals on, it wasn't going to happen. Right? But once I put those shoes on, I put myself in better position to run around with the kids around me, to have fun, to, 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 to be active. Right? And in the same way, we can put ourselves in a position where God can strengthen our faith, where we can just sit back and be like, that's okay. Just leave my sandals on. Easy life. All good. Here are four ways then you can put yourself in a better position to get your faith strengthened. Number one, pray for faith over ease. Pray for faith over ease. 
Now, I'm going to be preaching through Paul's letter to the Ephesians starting in September. Very excited about that. It's an awesome book. This book, in this book, Paul is stuck in jail, having been unjustly arrested. You know what he prays for? A fearless faith to share Jesus with prison guards and fellow inmates. Not pray to be released from jail, not just pray for better food while in jail. Something about his circumstance. No, he prays for faith to be strengthened, to have this bold faith to share Jesus with the inmates and the guards there. He writes to a people, Paul does, who are being harassed, who are dealing with hard people. You know what he prays for in chapter 1? Not ease. Not for their life to be easy, but, but for a stronger faith, to see Jesus more clearly, to know God better, for the eyes of their heart to be enlightened so they can know God better. He prays for them again in chapter 3. Same thing. Paul doesn't once pray for their lives to get easier. Even though all these hard circumstances are happening in his life and their lives, where are Paul's prayers for circumstances to get easier? They're not in the Bible. That should be telling to us, friends. should be telling to us. You know, our dear friend and our dear sister, Ms. Milland, I don't think we've announced this yet even, uh, had her first child, Elsie, a few weeks ago. If you don't recognize Ms., don't recognize that name. You know Ms. from up front. She's led worship for a few times for us, even this summer. In fact, 12 hours before going into labor, she led worship for us uh, a number of weeks ago, about three or four weeks ago. There were significant, significant difficulties for Lewis and Ms. prior to their pregnancy. But then Ms., she's pregnant and she persevered through it all, and then Elsie, came six weeks early. She was born six weeks early, and she had to spend, you know, a couple full weeks in the NICU. She received therapy, and, and she got, got more healthy and could, could, you know, be well enough to, to not, not be vulnerable to infection. And, and she, I, I love her. She, she went through something hard. Then she turns this corner, right? And, and then there's something immeasurably harder with her, her, her little precious daughter. But then there's, if you know M's, there's M's, seeing a bigger picture through the trial, trusting in God's promises. Even as, as we all, as our friends, and, and, and some of you guys, you pray for baby Elsie's strengthening. She was not the only one being strengthened. M's was being strengthened. Why? Because we prayed the way I know M's would want us to pray, which was God, strengthen M's's faith. Help her trust in you strengthen her. And how do I know this is what Ems would want us to pray for? Because I've heard Ems pray this hundreds of times for others. I've heard her do this. Where she'll pray for people not only for their circumstances and for their good health, which is right to do, but she prays especially for God strengthen that person's faith, strengthen their trust in you, which is what we're supposed to do. And that's always struck me. So pause and consider with me as we think about this. How do you pray? What do you primarily pray for yourself or for others? Is it an easier life or a stronger faith? Start there. That positions us better to be, to be ready to receive trials with joy, knowing that through them God is completing our faith. Another way to put yourself in, in position for your faith to be better strengthened is get more vocal about what God has done. Get more vocal about what God has done. You know, in Joshua chapter 2, we get to hear how God stops a current, a rushing current of a 100-foot-wide, 12-foot-deep river to allow tens of thousands of people to pass safely across into the promised land. And God actually tells them, after they have crossed, after God's people have crossed 
miraculously, to take 12 stones, large stones, with them as a visual aid. So each tribe can one day share with their children what God has done for them. So consider that with me, if you will. That's, that's kind of an awesome thing to do. We love that. That's a great visual image. Everyone got to, has this big riverbed stone. But imagine carrying that with you for the next five years of battle. Remember, they haven't rested in their territories yet. So they're carrying with them these massive stones because it's so important to one day tell people about what God has done. You know, the, the entire marketing industry uses this one key method, principle, to manipulate, or I mean persuade us as consumers. And that is the more you hear something, the more you believe it to be true. Right? The more you hear something, the more you believe it to be true. And, and you keep hearing about good things, keep hearing about good things, until finally I can't live without Siri or Alexa telling me what time it is. What time is it, Alexa? <laughs> 12.03 p.m. <laughs> Great. I can't even read a clock anymore, right? And so we, we hear these things. We hear you need this, you need this, you need this. And we go, oh, it's true. I need this. Yet as a church, we don't even do this with true things. As a church, we're nowhere near vocal enough about the true things God has done for us to the point where we really believe it. Sometimes we, we, we don't do this because we don't want to come across as super spiritual or like holier than thou towards someone else. And we, we don't want to be that person. Sometimes we, we're just afraid. We, we, met, we sometimes say, some of us here, We'll say, I'm the kind of person who shows my faith by what I do. I try to lead a good example. And that's right to do, but God actually commands us to talk. But we're afraid. Time and time again, though, we read in the Psalms how testifying about God's deeds acts as a, as a, as a kind of cement to our faith. It cements our faith. It, it allows it to become more firm, more, more steady, more complete, more whole, and lasts longer such that what God has done for you becomes part of you as you begin to share it with other people. Right? It cements it. I want to encourage us as a church, this is an area in which I think we need to grow. We, we are not, listen, I talk to other pastors, other people in ministry, I know other churches on this island. We are, we are not the church that's going to be super legalistic about how much we talk about God and hold it over other people. That's not us. Our area of growth needs to be talking about what God has done for us more with one another. That's where we need to grow, in my opinion. Another way we can put ourselves in better position to get our faith strengthened is do what God says. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not 